You're listening to the podcast from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler. Episode 12, The Hasmonean Kings. At the end of the last episode, we left Judah Maccabee in 164 BCE in control of the rededicated temple in Jerusalem. Judah's remarkable and unexpected defeat of the Seleucid forces to this point began a new chapter of Jewish history. Judah and his descendants would rule for slightly more than a century over what today we call Israel and Palestine. This episode is devoted to this period of the Hasmonean kings, the name given to Judah's family and their descendants. My intent here is to give a broad overview or survey of the military and political history of the Hasmoneans. Over the next several episodes, I will return to treat several aspects of the period in more depth to fill in the chronological and thematic outline that I will sketch today. I want to emphasize two themes throughout my discussion today. First, that Hasmonean rule, Jewish self-autonomy, was rather limited and contingent. Judah's victory, we will see, was something of a fluke and continued Hasmonean rule in a region of powerful and ambitious kingdoms largely dependent on diplomatic skills and a bit of luck. Second, also not very surprisingly, self-autonomy brought a new set of challenges that revolved around the internal distribution of power. The period saw the rise of Jewish political groups competing for authority. The Hasmoneans, like other local petty dynasties, had to look in several directions at the same time. So let's pick up with Judah at his triumphant moment, rededicating the temple in 164. Judah knew perfectly well that his victory was tenuous, that the Seleucids would respond, and that other regional powers, smelling blood and potential weakness, might detect an opportunity. He immediately fortified the walls around both the temple and another fortress that he controlled. At the same time, with the Seleucid army in disarray, he sought to expand his gains. According to the author of 1 Maccabees, Judah's military expeditions were launched only to save Jews who were facing persecution by Gentiles in neighboring cities. It is likely that this was a post facto justification for his attempts to expand his military reach. Much of the Hasmonean claim to power rested on their assertion that their family both liberated the temple and saved Judeans from persecution. In any event, as their brother Simon took an army to Galilee, Judah and his other brother, Jonathan, went across the Jordan to rout their enemies. First Maccabees contains an interesting detail at this point. The author recounts that two other unrelated Jews, Josephus, son of Zacharias, and Azarius, military leaders in their own rights, sought also to join in the conquest of these Gentile cities. They and their forces, however, suffered heavy defeat because, the author of the Hasmonean court history tells us, their commanders, thinking to play the hero themselves, had not obeyed Judah and his brothers. They were not, however, of that family to whom it was granted to bring deliverance to Israel. The Hasmoneans were not the only local Jewish family seeking to fill the vacuum left by Seleucid disarray. Even at this early stage of the revolt, the Maccabees faced local competition. With Judah consolidating his power, the Seleucids, in the middle of a crisis of dynastic succession, opted to save face. The new Seleucid king, 
Antiochus Eupator, the son of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, made de jure what had already been de facto. According to the report of 2 Maccabees, chapter 11, he commanded his advisor to lift the religious restrictions. It has been brought to our notice, he writes, that the Jews are not prepared to accept our father's policy and adopt Greek ways. They prefer their own mode of life and request that they be allowed to observe their own laws. It is our pleasure, therefore, that this nation, like others, shall continue undisturbed. We hereby decree that their temple be restored to them and that they be allowed to regulate their lives in accordance with their ancestral customs. Of course, it was 164 BCE, and by the time the king issued his orders, the temple had already fallen to the Maccabees. If Antiochus expected that Jewish military activity would cease in return for his tolerance, he was mistaken. Judah continued to conquer the regions around Jerusalem. God, according to the author of 2 Maccabees, was on their side. For this author, divine favor rested not only on the family, as in 1 Maccabees, but also on the piety and devotion of the army. After one defeat, the Jewish troops discovered that one of their fallen brothers was hiding idolatrous articles under his tunic. This served as an occasion for Judah to remind the troops that they will only win with God's help. And then he sent money back to Jerusalem as a sin offering for the other innocent soldiers who had died in order to help them obtain resurrection. The theological logic of the passage is fuzzy, but it mirrors the emerging belief in a resurrection of the dead that we have already seen. Antiochus Eupator was none too happy with Judah's continuing military activities. Menelaus, who you might remember from the last episode, was one of the primary culprits leading to the initial revolt, now saw an opportunity to return to power. He joined the king's march on Judah, but he miscalculated. The king and his court finally tired of him, and the author of 2 Maccabees gleefully relates how they savagely executed him. Meanwhile, Judah engaged in a sneak attack on the much larger Seleucid force, raising tensions even further. Antiochus bogged down, and before he could make much progress, a usurper to his throne arose in Antioch. Needing now to march on Antioch, Antiochus quickly came to terms with the Jews. Antiochus may have had too much on his hands to deal with the Jews, but Judah appears to have been chastened too by the encounter. He ceased military operations for the next three years and may have remained satisfied with the status quo had Antiochus not been overthrown after all. But Antiochus fell to Demetrius and yet another of the deposed Jewish high priests, a man named Alchemus, convinced him to attack Judah. In one of the most peculiar episodes in the book, the Seleucid general, Nicanor, established a temporary truce with Judah and entered Jerusalem. We read, He kept Judah close to himself at all times, for he had developed a real affection for him. He urged him to marry and to have children, so Judah married and settled down to the quiet life of an ordinary citizen. It must have made Judah's mother, if she was still alive, very happy. On the other hand, these friendly relations infuriated Alchemus. Alchemus goaded the king to order Nicanor 
to arrest Judah. Judah, though, fled in time. It was while running from Nicanor, the author of 2 Maccabees tells us, that God's agents, Onias and the prophet Jeremiah, appeared to him in a vision assuring him of victory. And indeed, Judah and his men improbably beat Nicanor's army, killing Nicanor himself. Judah had once again defied the odds, and to celebrate, he brought back Nicanor's head and right arm, impaled them on the walls of Jerusalem, and fed Nicanor's tongue to the birds. Another holiday was thus decreed, the twelfth of Adar, the day before Mordecai's day, as they call it, which is itself the day before the holiday of Purim. Although the account of 2 Maccabees ends here, the story does not. Demetrius, with Alchemist's help, continued the assault. In 160 BCE, in another battle against the Seleucids, Judah was finally killed. Judah's death unleashed anarchy. The Jewish renegades, as they are termed by the author of 1 Maccabees, took control. The Seleucids took Jerusalem and installed Alchemist as the high priest. To the satisfaction of the author of 1 Maccabees, Alchemist would die a natural but painful death around 159 BCE as a punishment for his sins. On the run now, Judah's allies turned to his brother, Jonathan. Jonathan and his men evaded capture for a few years. Sometime around 157 BCE, Jonathan, his brother Simon, and their men renewed the assault on the Seleucids. Again employing guerrilla-style tactics, they succeeded in getting peace terms from the Seleucids. With Alchemist dead and no clear leader of the so-called renegade stepping forward, Jonathan was recognized as ruler and began to govern at Mishmash, outside of Jerusalem. In 152 BCE, in a bid to win Jonathan's allegiance against another claimant to the throne, Alexander, King Demetrius restored Jerusalem to Jonathan and gave him the right to raise an army. Alexander did him one better. He appointed Jonathan both king's friend and high priest. Demetrius attempted to raise the ante yet again, offering tax exemptions and the like, but Jonathan threw his lot in with Alexander. It was a good choice. Alexander defeated Demetrius in 150 BCE and honored his promises to Jonathan. Jonathan was appointed a governor and was faithful to Alexander, even when confronted by yet another claimant to the Seleucid throne. It is important to note the vagueness of his autonomous status. He was not a king or an independent ruler, but recognized as an ally of the Seleucid king, to whom he pledged his allegiance. Alexander, though, did not last very long. The new king, another King Demetrius, confirmed Jonathan's prerogatives, even though he had fought against him. Jonathan played the game of real politique as well as could be expected. With his relatively tiny army and territory, he had to steer between not only major hostile military powers, but also the political machinations within each of these powers. He forged treaties with Sparta and Rome, but ultimately fell to court intrigue. He was captured by Trypho, another military leader who aspired to the Seleucid throne. Jonathan's and Judah's brother Simon now took leadership of the army. Trypho, failing his attack on Simon, put Jonathan to death. 
Simon gave him, Jonathan, a fitting burial in the family tomb in Modi'in, constructing an impressive monument to honor his family. Archaeologists have not yet succeeded in locating this tomb. Simon, like his brother, was confirmed as high priest and friend of the king. The author of 1 Maccabees regards this as something of a watershed moment. In the year 170, that is, 142 BCE by our reckoning, Israel was released from the Gentile yoke. The people began to write on their contracts and agreements in the first year of Simon, the great high priest, general, and leader of the Jews. There is not a little irony in this line. The author here and throughout the rest of the book continues to use the Seleucid calendar, which is reckoned from the reign of the first Seleucus. In any case, Simon further expanded the borders of Judea through military conquest. Rome and Sparta renewed their treaties with him. His rule, according to the author of 1 Maccabees, almost seemed idyllic. Old men sat in the streets, talking together of their blessings, and the young men arrayed themselves in splendid military style. Peace was restored to the land, and throughout Israel there was great rejoicing. Everyone sat under his own vine and fig tree, and there was none to cause alarm. Those were days when no enemy was seen in the land, and every hostile king was crushed. Simon gave his protection to the poor among the people. He fulfilled the demands of the law and rid the country of renegades and evil men. He enhanced the splendor of the temple and furnished it with a wealth of sacred vessels. Simon's rule was confirmed by the people. In fact, in an unprecedented act, the people had a lengthy inscription made on bronze tablets, placed on a monument on Mount Zion, confirming Simon's rule. It was a unanimous decision of the people, the tablets conclude, that Simon should officiate in the ways laid down here. Simon accepted and consented to be high priest, general, and ethnarch of the Jews and the priests, and to be protector of them all. The tablets, too, have yet to be discovered by archaeologists. By 134 BCE, Simon was old and had begun to turn over his throne to his two oldest sons, Judah and John. It appears that not everyone agreed with the succession. Ptolemaeus, the son of Abubus, Simon's own son-in-law and commander of the plain of Jericho, tricked and murdered Simon and two of his sons, including Judah. His plot against John failed, though. John quickly took control of the army and had Ptolemaeus killed. The account of 1 Maccabees ends here, with a brief note that John's own accomplishments are recorded in the Annals. 1 Maccabees ends with the generational transition. The brothers Maccabee have now all died, having established a minor but relatively secure semi-autonomous kingdom to pass to their descendants. Nevertheless, as the incident of Ptolemaeus intimates, the descendants of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, would continue to face the same kind of internal opposition that plagued the other royal courts. To continue the story of the Hasmoneans, we need to turn from 1 Maccabees to the later Jewish historian Josephus. I will devote a future episode entirely to Josephus, but for now it is worth noting that most scholars more or less think that Josephus' basic account of the Hasmonean kings is sound, biased to be sure, but accurate.
John ruled from 135 to 104 BCE. The start of his reign was rocky. He fell out with the Seleucids over the cities that Simon had conquered. He negotiated a cash settlement, but the Seleucid king, now Antiochus VII, destroyed Jerusalem's walls. From that point on, though, the Seleucids were so preoccupied with their own internal struggles that they appear to have left Hyrcanus pretty much alone. Hyrcanus appears to have been confident enough to issue coinage, usually a royal prerogative. A large number of coins have been found that carry the name Yohanan, the high priest. The inscription, often in Paleo-Hebrew, is usually supplemented by the phrase Chever HaYehudim, or even Rosh Chever HaYehudim. If the Yochanan in these coins really is John Hyrcanus, but there is some scholarly debate on this matter, then he seems to share power with this Chever, probably a kind of council or senate, which at some point he also leads. More importantly, Hyrcanus initiated his own military expeditions. Although Josephus does not tell us why, they, like those of his father and uncles, have what we would call religious overtones. He went north, conquering Samaria. The highlight of this excursion was the destruction of the Samaritan temple at Gerizim, which was modeled on the Jerusalem temple and had been built in the time of Alexander the Great. Later in his rule, Hyrcanus would return to further his conquest of Samaria. Hyrcanus similarly struck at the religious identity of the next group that he conquered, the Idumeans. Idumea was south of Judea, in the area around modern-day Beersheba. According to Josephus, after subduing all the Idumeans, John permitted them to remain in their country so long as they had themselves circumcised and were willing to observe the laws of the Jews. And so, out of attachment to the land of their fathers, they submitted to circumcision and to making their manner of life conform in all other respects to that of the Jews. And from that time on, they have continued to be Jews. What was Hyrcanus up to with these actions? He may have intended to unite his increasingly diverse, multi-ethnic kingdom through adherence to the same God, even if it was not always voluntary. There is an eerie resemblance between this tactic and the way that the author of 1 Maccabees understood the actions of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who sought to make a single nation out of his empire. At the same time, these acts would have helped to justify his military conquests as pleasing to the God of Israel, much as the Maccabees justified many of their own endeavors. We should not be entirely cynical. Hyrcanus might well have sincerely believed that this was what God wanted. The true significance of Hyrcanus's actions actually reaches well beyond the reign of Hyrcanus and even his descendants. This is the first real recorded case of conversion to Judaism. Remember that to be a Jew in this period generally meant to be part of a people or an ethnos. One could be born into an ethnos, or if you were a woman, you could marry a member of an ethnos and integrate into your husband's ethnic community. It was not, though, a voluntary religious identity. For a non-Jew to wake up one day in his own home and city among his own family and declare himself a Jew would be an incoherent act. It was as if I were to wake up tomorrow and declare that I was now going to be Italian-American. 
as much as I occasionally aspire to such an ethnic identity, no amount of wishing or culinary exploration is going to get me there. Herkin has created, as it were, a way to become Jewish. His first requirement was, unsurprisingly, circumcision for men. The need for circumcision is well attested in the Bible, and had already become, as we have seen earlier, a known marker of Jewish identity. This, though, was not enough. The potential converts had to conform to Jewish norms or mores, whatever exactly that means. The conversion of the Edomaeans is, of course, exceptional. It is a forced conversion of a whole people who nevertheless continued to identify as Jews well after Hasmonean reign ceased. But it also creates a possibility where none really existed before, for non-Jewish individuals to choose to become Jewish. Remember that in all the miraculous stories of God appearing to the non-Jews who sought to defile the temple, non-Jews never actually become Jews. In the later tellings of such and similar stories, they do. There is an expansion of what it really means to be Jewish. Under Herkinus, we also see the beginning of the kind of fractious internal Jewish politics that led to the earlier persecutions of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Herkinus found himself in the middle of a dispute between Pharisees and Sadducees, the first time that we encounter these Jewish groups. I will discuss the Pharisees and Sadducees more extensively in the next episode of this podcast. So for now, I only want to comment that they appear in these accounts of their earliest activities more as political parties than as religious groups. Herein might lie a key difference between the times of Onias and Menelaus and that of Hyrcanus. The earlier conflicts primarily involved families and money. In Hyrcanus' dealings with the Pharisees and Sadducees, if there were conflicts between familial clans, they are subsumed to, or maybe disguised by, these larger, presumably voluntary groups. For the later historian Josephus, writing some two centuries later, John Hyrcanus represented the height of the Hasmonean rule. It was all pretty much downhill from there. Hyrcanus, Josephus tells us, was accounted by God worthy of three of the greatest privileges, the rule of the nation, the office of the high priest, and the gift of prophecy. For the deity was with him and enabled him to foresee and foretell the future, even that of the failure of his two sons. Despite Hyrcanus' wish that his rule fall to his wife, it was his son, Aristobulus, who seized control, in fact imprisoning his other brothers and his mother. He continued the conquests of his father, bringing the Eturians under his control and having them circumcised. Unlike his predecessors, he took, we are told, the title king. With Aristobulus I begins the cycle of internal dynastic familial violence that would stay with the Hasmonean rulers until their end just a few decades later. Aristobulus killed both his mother and the brother who posed the most significant threat to him. Not that it was to much avail. He died of an illness a year later, having ruled only from 104 to 103 BCE. Upon Aristobulus's death, his remaining brothers were released from prison 
and one Yanai or Janaeus, also called Alexander, was made king. Alexander Janaeus reigned 27 years, from 103 to 76 BCE. He continued the military expansion of his brother and ancestors. By the time he died, Hasmonean rule extended north through the Galilee, west to coastal cities such as Caesarea, east into the Transjordan, and south into Idumea. As with Jonathan, he could conduct these campaigns only because the Seleucids were yet again engaged in a round of bloody battles for succession. Janaeus seemed to have more problems at home than he did on his military excursions. Josephus reports a six-year civil war for reasons that don't make a lot of sense. They, that is those who were rebelling against him, accused him of being unfit for the high priesthood. This sounds more like a post facto justification than a real cause. In any event, Janaeus appears to have repressed the riots savagely. Janaeus appointed his wife, Alexandra Salome, to succeed him. Alexandra, beginning her rule in 76 BCE upon the natural death of her husband, did not continue the expansive military expeditions of her predecessors. Instead, she consolidated their gains, maintained a powerful army, and forged peaceful relations with her neighbors. According to Josephus, she handed over much of her power to the Pharisees, who ruled ruthlessly. They made one of her sons in particular, Aristobulus, not a little angry. And indeed, one day when Alexandra Salome fell sick, her son Aristobulus struck, and with a large and growing army quickly subdued the strongholds outside of Jerusalem. Alexandra died very soon afterwards of her illness at the age of 73. She had ruled from nine years, from 76 to 67 BCE. At the time of her death, Alexandra's other son, Hyrcanus II, as he is conventionally called, was in Jerusalem and was made the new king. Aristobulus II, his brother, quickly declared war on him, and when the dust settled, they agreed that Aristobulus II should be king. The agreement, though, didn't last for long. A certain Antipater, the son of the governor of Edomea under Alexander Janaeus, convinced Hyrcanus that he and not Aristobulus II was the rightful ruler. After four years in 63 BCE, Hyrcanus attacked Aristobulus II and drove him into Jerusalem, where he besieged him. Aristobulus holed up with the priests in the temple as Hyrcanus pressed his siege. Aristobulus outsmarted him, though, gaining through expensive gifts the favor of the Romans, who were fast advancing in the area. The Romans ordered Hyrcanus to lift the siege, and he had little choice but to comply. The disputants were now to appear before Pompey. After listening to their competing claims, Pompey desired to keep the peace at least long enough to allow him passage to the Nabataean territories. Aristobulus, though, made trouble, and Pompey responded. Aristobulus fled to the Jerusalem temple, and Pompey pursued, soon storming the temple. It fell easily. Pompey captured Aristobulus II and his family and sent them all to Rome. He killed many of the defenders of the temple, installed Hyrcanus II as high priest, and reorganized Judea, making Jerusalem a tributary of Rome. 
Aristobulus would go in and out of Roman captivity for the rest of his life. Hyrcanus II had won, or had he? Hyrcanus was never to regain the kingship. He was high priest until 47 BCE, when Julius Caesar appointed him ethnarch, giving him a little more political power. Even this lasted only seven years, when in 40 BCE, one of the sons of Aristobulus II, Antigonus, was proclaimed king with the help of the Parthians. Antigonus was defeated in 37 BCE by Herod, the son of Antipater. Herod lured Hyrcanus back to Jerusalem, and in 30 BCE, killed him too. So the Hasmonean line comes to an end, although for all intents and purposes, its power had ceased in 63 BCE, with Pompey's reorganization. And with it came also the end of a century of Jewish political autonomy in the land of Israel, which would last until 1948. Whether this autonomy made any impact on most contemporary Jews, though, is far from clear. The Hasmoneans had set themselves up as high priests, and then also kings, and their claims to both were highly contentious. Also, one wonders if for most Jews, even in Judea, the ruler would really have mattered very much. Under a Hasmonean king or a Roman procurator, the daily rhythms of life for most would hardly differ. What is perhaps most striking about the Hasmoneans from their very beginning is just how unstriking they are, how typical of the petty dynasties of the region. They slid between the political flows of the massive powers, occasionally receiving glancing blows as they did. Their relations with those they ruled were uneven, and their families were hotbeds of intrigue. In the end, though, they were doomed. One way or the other, they would have fallen under Roman ambition. Politically, I have ended with the rise of Herod. Before I discuss Herod, though, over the next few episodes, I want to spend some time filling in aspects of life during the Hasmonean period. In the next episode, as I noted earlier, I will pick up with the beginning of what we now call Jewish sectarianism. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.